you know, when I grew up in Philly, right, my dad was a pharmacist and people would always say, what's your dad do? I said, well, he sells drugs. And because uh, he did, but it was a very different way of saying prescription. Yeah, you kind of left out the detail that he was on a platform in a white coat. Right. You know, I get it. <laughs> You're in Portland now? Portland, Oregon. Yes. Yeah. How did you find your way out there from Philly? And I was really interested in space and physics and things like that. And I, I was fortunate enough to get into Princeton. And it was actually closer than Penn. So if you... Is it really? Well, we lived up in the Northeast. So by going up 95, there's less traffic. And I could get to Princeton in 30 minutes where my folks could on weekends to bring me corned beef sandwiches and stuff, but always at least six because I'd have all enough for the other roommates and people in the hallway. I wouldn't get any because they were all bigger than I was and they loved her right, food. Right. Philly's this weird shape. So the Northeast is a huge geography compared to a lot of the rest of Philly. And, and yes, I was up in that that part of it. Right. Okay. I did physics at Princeton and then walking through finals one February where it was snowy, muddy, gunky, and I stepped in a, a, a little ice that turned out to be a foot deep puddle and just got all wet and run. I said, that's it. I'm checking out, but I, I did, after I did the Argonne National Lab, I got into the whole National Lab program and learned about Lawrence Berkeley Lab in California and visited there in February when it was muddy, wet, wet rainy in Princeton and just fell in love with UC Berkeley's campus and the, and the weather because it was just gorgeous, right? And then decided to go to you know grad school there and I ended up being in the People's Republic of Berkeley for many, many, many years, both as far as grad school and beyond and, and stayed in California, which then led me into Silicon Valley, rotted my brain for a bit and got sucked into marketing, which rotted it worse. But it was a lot of fun and lucrative and helped start entire industries like the flat panel industry and LCD TV industry. I'm actually still chairman of the LCD TV Association, a global not-for-profit marketing thing. Right. But it's been interesting. And so that led me, I joined Philips Components to do display things, which I knew well, which led me to then the joint venture we created with LG to make LG Philips LCD. And I was fortunate enough to be offered a, a two-year contract to go to Korea. They left me there for almost seven years because it took longer to take them public and do things we wanted to do. But then again, I was helped, honored to do the IPO and create a much bigger LG display, which is what the, it came to be known. And then I joined the board of LG Display. Oh, sure. Where in Korea were you? In Seoul. Then decided my wife's parents were up in Alaska at the time, retired and fishing. And my, wife, my parents were in Pennsylvania. So halfway was the West Coast. And we didn't want to raise kids in Silicon Valley just because it was a little crowded and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, so we chose Portland, Oregon. But I love Portland. It was a great place to raise kids. And I just ended up partnering with other technology companies around the country. I commuted for a bit from Portland to Denver to do solar. And it was great. Uh, but then I've started doing a lot more other sensor-related work in the last five to six years as I saw a, a huge failing in our technology space, really. You know, for example, I've was one for 25 years, not just displays, but was an early promoter, investor, and even patents in, in touchscreens. We helped make better, smaller, better, lighter screens that enabled things like the iPad and iPhone. And they've been great devices. But in the last 10 years, I've seen the 100 to 1 or 1,000 to 1 decrease in pricing of certain sensors and the 100 to 1 or 1,000 to 1 increase in performance has been focused on making better purple hippopotamus filters for teenagers. And that is not you know, the societal good I wanted my career in technology right. uh, focused on. So bringing that benefit of sensors in different ways to other broader markets like healthcare. Uh, and again, yes, I was prompted by 
issues in, in my family where my father got sick. He was actually cured at University of Pennsylvania, uh, some modern you know, research surgery, but then going back for some more data later after they cured him, he threw a blood clot on the table and died. It was just kind of a rare, unfortunate event. But again, it led me to think we could do better. We could use technology better for other areas in healthcare and science and whatnot, which led me to people like the ones who uh, were starting up LightSense, who are applying their capabilities in spectroscopy to create a new architecture in multispectral systems that would increase signal noise a, a great deal, thousands and thousands of times, it would decrease pricing. And that's been our real focus, uh, is to shape LightSense into a company that uses modern techniques and new techniques in physics and spectroscopy and even machine learning and AI to help bring things to market in areas that will help public health. One of them being the opioid addiction market, which is our first product out there to better detect illicit drugs safely and efficiently for law enforcement. But the real imperative is, is taking that technology in other spaces like food safety, healthcare, plenty of places with point of, point of care testing where it can be applied. And we have first public showing will be next month, actually, in mid-October in Dallas at the IACP show, whose acronym means International Association of the Chiefs of Police. The, the passion comes across. You know what I'm saying? You've been at this. This is your career. This is your life. And well, I'm trying to change what my career that helped create, you know, huge economic businesses for companies that do consumer devices and then displays and flat screens and touch screens. I'm trying to change that now into ways of making advances in, again, the physics and technology, especially non, non-destructive testing that most people don't realize what it can do yet. It'll be commonplace five, 10 years from now. But bringing that into new spaces like healthcare and public, you know, health issues—that's what I want my career to be. So, um, what do you like better? I mean, you're a scientist. When you're knee deep in discovering something new, is it more fun to discover something or to tell somebody else about it? More the latter, to some degree. I mean, again, in the old days, you could be a scientist, a marketer, a mathematician, or whatnot. Today, you can't do anything deeply without limiting to a small niche. So. I consider myself a scientist, but not a practicing one in the sense that, again, the people that the PhDs in Glenn make research labs and people, and I'm still close to my past advisors and labs I've worked in at Berkeley and Princeton and things like that. But what my niche that I found that I love is to market technology and then monetize technology. And, and sometimes they're in parallel and sometimes they're sequential and sometimes they're unrelated. But I really do like both the technology piece and then appreciating how it can help people uh, in ways that can make a sustainable business, right? So um, I'm not about making everything a billion dollars because a lot of technology is ruined by being overcharging and hurting society, but I am about making enough money to pay back, to do more R&D, to bring more technology to market and talk about it, et cetera. So uh, using technology helps society in a sustainable way. And speaking of helping society in a sustainable way, you are listening to the successfully funded podcast brought to you by KiwiTech, a growing ecosystem of entrepreneurs, investors, mentors, accelerators, incubators, and corporations. We help early and growth stage startups build viable products, drive traction, raise capital, and scale their businesses. Now, before we continue our conversation uh, with LightSense technology, there's the brief disclaimer, which you've all come to know and love at this point. KiwiTech is not acting as a broker, dealer, or investment advisor and is not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission in any such capacities. At no time does KiwiTech provide investment advice, endorsement, analysis, or recommendations with respect to securities. Information contained herein should be viewed for entertainment purposes only. 
Kiwi Tech does not verify or assure that information provided by any issuer offering its securities is accurate or complete, or that the valuation of such securities is appropriate. Investing in securities, particularly in securities issued by startup companies, involves substantial risk, and investors should be able to bear the loss of their entire investment. And the entire disclaimer is up on our website, successfullyfundedpodcast.com slash disclaimer. Now, enough of that. We are here to talk about LightSense technology, which provides miniature handheld spectrometer platforms to help solve some major problems in public health, such as the opioid epidemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and problems in pathogens and food safety. And I'm here with the Chief Marketing Officer and Galaxy Brain, Mr. Bruce Burkoff. Bruce, welcome. Thank you, Doug. You're too kind. And uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's a pleasure to be here. And I, you know, to be frank, I was very impressed uh, with your website, not because of the long disclaimer, but because of the other interviews with just amazing companies and, and people much smarter and I'm sure more handsome than myself. But it's great to meet you. And it's, uh, I'm proud to be part of this. Growing and that's community. why we're podcasting. We have a voice for broadcasting and a face to match. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we were talking a bit about your exploits, moving your way west from Philadelphia to Berkeley and then up to Portland to stay in touch with Alaska. I'm trying to keep track of all the details at uh -huh. once, and it's definitely, you're really testing my neuroplasticity That's here. Okay. I appreciate it's it greatly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's I, a beautiful spot. And I do get, you mentioned the People's Republic of Berkeley. I, I get that same sense. There's a lot of Ann Arbor vibe there as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't use that pejoratively, but just, you know, with a sense of fascination and, and childlike wonder. Oh, sure. Yeah. When you consider, I mean, Ann Arbor, they sell T-shirts here that say six square miles surrounded by reality. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Berkeley, like, all Silicon Valley is like that. Cause I'm before Portland, in Asia, right? I lived in, in Korea and uh, helped you know, raise my family there. So we chose Portland just because it's just so gorgeous and green. Um, yeah. California. Well, what's it like uh, raising a family in Korea? I actually spent some time there teaching GMATs. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Seoul is, first of all, Korea is an amazing place, but the scale, it, it just boggles the mind to, to people, you know, from America, but living in a city, you know, like Seoul with 10 or 15 million people in the city proper, but 25 million in the, the, the suburban It's area. astonishing, isn't it? Just how many people live in that metro area, for sure. It's more than a lot of countries, right? And of course, I've been maybe a hundred times to China uh, from there and other places too, but you know, a big city in China is 20 million, a small city, teeny cities, you know, below 10 or even below five. And which is mind boggling, right? When you have one or two million people in a city in America, that's huge. That's barely a village in, in China. And, and Korea is not the same because most of the country is in Seoul or surrounding. There's a couple other spots. Yeah, know, Busan and yeah. It's amazingly wonderful country with amazing people, amazing food, amazing scenery, and not just the incredibly concrete scenery in Seoul, but outside mountains and, and forests and even ski resorts and, and beaches. It's just beautiful. And the people are just amazing. My daughter, I mean, my son was born in Silicon Valley, but went to Korea with me before it was two and did, you know, some local Korean schools and the British school, part of the American foreign school in Seoul, which is awesome. My daughter was born in Seoul at uh, Samsung Jail Hospital and then, you know, left when she was four speaking both English and Korean as a four-year-old would. That's extraordinary. Yeah. So you were working for some of the Chebol there? Sure. And I wasn't with Samsung uh, there, although since then I've helped both Samsung, LG, and you know, and SK and Hyundai, different parts of the different major Chebol groups with certain startups and companies in the US. Uh, but at the time we did, I was part of Philips and we Philips did a pretty major joint venture 
think it was the biggest in history for either Phillips or Korea at the time, because uh, Phillips put in $1.6 billion to do this LG Phillips LCD joint venture to help build displays together that both companies need, both LG and Phillips have a long history of monitors and television cells and taking them from what was incredibly good, but thick and heavy and, you know, glass CRTs to the much lighter and in many ways better LCDs. That was a difficult transition. And I was a big part of that and proud to be helping them both do that. So let's fast forward a bit. Now you're back in the States and I want to make sure we talk about LightSense and it's, sure. uh, it's early days, it's Genesis. Uh, when you think about the powers of spectroscopy to help detect uh, pathogens and illegal drugs and how does that science work and how did the inspiration to create something like this first arrive? My focus is really to look at breakthroughs in the last 10 years in sensors and physics and the advances in AI and machine learning, which are very different by the way. AI is much broader, machine learning is much more specific and and it's a way really of recognizing patterns. But when you use that with data analysis, curvating things in spectroscopy, you can just do amazing things. And spectroscopy is really this light interaction with matter. So in, if you've taken freshman chemistry or physics, at some point in time, you look at you know, shining a light on something at a certain wavelength that can be visible light, U, UV, IR, it will interact or be absorbed at certain sides. And that shows up differently in terms of how you check for peaks or reflectivity and other things in the energy. But it, it's telling you about bond information about what you're looking at, right? And today, I'm always amazed at friends of mine who are major astrophysics folks and built part of the, the incredible tools we have to look out hundreds of millions and billions of miles away, which is really billions of years in time away, and see things often, not just, not just in visible light, but in other light, but often even use spectroscopy and radio telescopes as a type of that as well to, to look at signals. But microscope, when that came into being, allows you to look at smaller and smaller things. The spectroscopy pieces, uh, you know, for example, and, and a really impressive one being like magnetic resonance, allows you to look inside of things non-destructively. And so you can start using light, radio waves, other things to, and magnetics fields to look inside of things, know what's there and, and help people, right? You can find brain tumors years before other symptoms occur, things like that. So what's the nature of light senses IP and how long did it take to get to a point, alpha testing, beta testing? When did you get realize that it was a viable thing that could be um, brought to market? Well, the, the patents actually, it's an interesting thing because a lot of people think patents are the most important thing for startups. And of course, they're one of the necessary <laughs> The know-how that's not in the patents is even more important than what's in the patents because you don't want to give away everything in the patents for people to copy or understand. And the know-how lasts longer and better. But the real goal is looking at physics and the math and analysis and AI machine learning and things you could do that the, are possible today that weren't possible 20 years ago because of improvements of everything related to chips and sensors and costs uh, that have occurring because of Moore's law in, in, in places and lenses law and things like that in, in, in LEDs. So everything's gotten better, smaller, more powerful and cheaper. And that enables a lot of cool new things. So when you talked about putting together the, the IP, whatever, you know, both the know-how that the team has and the patent, because every company's proprietary IP is just a key point that investors usually focus on. Um, what is particular about your IP in terms of how the spectroscopy works and how you learned it could detect things with such speed. Well, Wade Petit, was, who is our CTO, was actually with a different company that 
invented a lot of the earlier IP for using UV to look at very small differences in atomic bonds, which they use first for methamphetamine, and we're using now for fentanyl as well as meth. But they had a lot of IP. I think they were too early in some things. They chose to go to market in ways I wouldn't have, and that led to their, their, their company not surviving. But we basically got the exclusive license to their whole bucket of IP, and then we refiled more to take it further and expand. And it was the process of going through that refiling and doing filings for, for new IP for different uses of it that I really understood, wait a minute, there's a lot more here than we they thought about just for illicit drug things that could help in whole areas of public health. We started with thinking about food safety and pathogen detection. Then the pandemic hit. I said, wait a minute, it's you know 10 times smaller and 100 times harder to look at viruses, but can't we do that? And so we applied like- I love that, by the way. Anytime you can say, can't we do that? Yeah, that's... no, Abio said, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. And a week later, it was like, we're, we were already figuring out a way. Wait, someone told you there's no way? Internally, our discussions of everyone, you know, whenever you say to a bunch of scientists and engineers, we can do this, even though it's really hard. Their first reaction is it's impossible because, right? Or really hard that we are they still that. with the company? Yeah, they are. Because they are. <laughs> you, you want skeptics internally because if you can't overcome the internal skeptics, you can never overcome the external skeptics. Oh, it's good practice for sure. You yeah. do it with data and analysis and you know thought, right? It takes time. It's frustrating sometimes to slow down and have those internal discussions, but they're really valuable. Well, let's talk about what were those doubts then and how did you overcome them? Well, because we had just thought of using the similar techniques to look at bacteria, which no one's really did before. There were very few papers in the whole world of millions of science papers, people using spectroscopy to correctly analyze bacteria, especially in complex signals in the real world. But there was, an, and, and I didn't even know about the, the, how little there was out there when we said, but I knew enough about the science to say, we can do this. And the advances in signal noise enabled me to be confident we could do this, but it wasn't trivial. It, it takes money and people and time and talent to do things. And then when the pandemic hit, it was like, wow, the incentive was to try and do something much harder. And we actually applied like every other company in the, in the, in the States for some government money. We were a couple of days later than most. So, you know, it was like a 14 day window to apply and in five days they spent 90%, 99% of the money. We got some of the leftovers through a smaller grant with the Defense Logistics Agency, part of the DOD, to prove to them that we could see COVID in human saliva and not only see COVID, but do things no one else thought was possible at the time, but see the difference between this coronavirus and other very similar ones. So COVID versus MERS or SARS or other things. And to see, we didn't even know this at the first, but we thought about it and discovered over time that we can see something PCR and genetics can't see which is the difference between a, you know, active and inactive or a living and dead virus. Because PCR is incredibly powerful in a $100 billion industry, and it should be. But it's destructive testing, and it rips things apart, and it can't tell the difference between a living thing's DNA and a dead thing's DNA, because it's both identified as DNA. Right. So, you know, we put together the, the old IP we had, and, found, and which also gave us permission, by the way, and, and granted for what we call now enhanced photo detection spectroscopy, which is really combining two or more different types of spectroscopy with data fusion to get a huge increase in signal noise. And that uniqueness is something that wasn't being marketed at the time. So we brought that, we're starting to market that as our company and starting to apply that first in terms of like fentanyl detection, but later in terms of pathogens and bacteria detection and that virus detection, we proved we could do 
is certainly part of our future, I hope, but we're not talking about as much probably at the moment because it just takes so much more time and money to do something for human health, including FDA approval and whatnot. So it's premature for that to generate revenue. And I, I don't want, I want people to know about it. If you look at our animations and whatnot for technology on our website, lightsensetechnology.com, you see mentions of it, but the real focus to start for revenue is the illicit drug detection and then moving into food safety because they're just economically sooner. Right. Well, now, when you mention the FDA, are you, are you going to need some level of approval to go forward in certain aspects of your business? Well, so the first answer is not in some aspects, no matter what, right? So not in things we're doing with the police, not in things we want to do for food safety, not even things we want to do for animal livestock and stuff. You would need the USDA for some minor approvals, and that's trivial compared to the FDA. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, sure. Yeah, I think the benefits for human use are unique and huge. But just like we're doing in some of the earlier areas, we're looking for partnerships so that we're not trying to fund everything ourselves, right? right. And create a whole huge amount of information just for FDA approval for that won't lead for revenue growth for, for, for multiple years. So right. we, we have pathways to bring that to market with different partnerships over time. But right, and we're doing that earlier with like even channel partnerships for our legal law enforcement safety and efficiency products now. Uh, we have ideas and partnerships and discussion with people in food safety as well, but the healthcare ones will be much bigger, but farther out. Right. And in any discussion for the benefit of investors, it would be remiss if we didn't mention potential headaches, bureaucracy, headwinds, all sorts of stuff that you got to prep yourself for, because for every obstacle you prepare for, there's one you didn't. Yeah. So that's the advantage of having people with uh, you know hundreds of years of experience, like our, our founding team does. The team has got over 150 patents. Well, Not far be it from us to indulge in reverse ageism and, and <laughs> impugn well, the intelligence of our younger brethren. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that there's benefit in that wisdom because we learn what not to do. Oh, and sure. We, Absolutely. Yeah. Knowing well, that we can do other things first before we deal with healthcare and FDA and things like that gives us, and we focus on the science, gives us a much greater ROI and return on investment for our investors because we focus on where we can add real value create real shareholder value, and then find partnerships and other ways to share on the upside with people to invest the efforts in the areas that aren't part of our specific R&D expertise. And it sounds like your revenue sources are diverse. You've kind of diversified your portfolio a bit. So when you talk about law enforcement versus food safety versus COVID-19 detection, those seem to be uh, rather separate and specific in terms of relying Absolutely. on one. The other one is log jammed or vice versa. The problem is the snapshot today is we got only revenue in one small area there, although we're about to announce some revenue with a strategic partner that we can't talk about. Oh, yes. Intrigue. Awesome. You but didn't hear it first here. Well, the first time we're mentioned in public is here. I haven't even done a press release or a campaign update on, on Start Engine about it yet, but there's a, you know, a huge field in manufacturing of specific very high-tech products that way you have a partner that wants to utilize that technology to make that better uh, and more cost efficient, you know, and, and help actually with climate change issues. So it's part of our goal to use technology to better mankind. But overall, the focus is always saving lives, saving money. And we think we can do that first in law enforcement, in food safety, in healthcare and point of care testing, as well as manufacturing of different things where we can make things more efficient and more cost effective. So if we were to pick one of those three for the, for the sake of the podcast, and it, it seems reductive since there's going to be a whole spectrum of services, I think you're eventually going to apply this technology to. Right. 
Right. Let's talk a bit about how specifically this technology is implemented in terms of how a subscriber or how a licensee would use it and, sure. and what kind of preventative information it provides us with. The big yeah. three areas we talked about, right? Right. The opioid crisis, which really does mean starting with law enforcement. Food safety, which means starting with certain aspects of food, you know, like fish farming or things like that, which we can do, or fish processing or other types of that. And then, of course, healthcare is a huge area where point-of-care tests could be part of it. But I notice I've introduced a fourth major area that doesn't exist uh, in public for us yet in manufacturing and working with partners. And some of what we've already gotten people wanting to sell our things under their brand, which we don't do yet, but we're willing to discuss and find ways to do to different. Well, might, you might white label this somehow and let people um, exactly. Exactly. use it so that So for way. example, you can see right now we've introduced uh, a new product, which does both fentanyl and meth. And don't do fentanyl and meth at the same time, just public service announcement. <laughs> How specifically could a law enforcement operation that has subscribed to your light sense technology get to something that you can work through at the, at the preventative stage or is it more in the punitive stage? It's actually neither of those P words, I would think. is, is <laughs> Okay. And we do have subscription ideas of our technology and software as a service in mind for future things based on our spectroscopy and our EPS spectroscopy systems. Uh, what we're offering now, though, is a handheld solution that's less than eight grand, which sounds like a lot of money, but other solutions in the space now that help for fentanyl from much larger companies than ours cost either 27000 or 75000 And so... Our 8,000 is a much smaller number, and it's a much smaller device from 10 times smaller than you know the $27,000 one to 100 times smaller than the $75,000 one. They all claim to be portable. We can fit in a glove compartment in a person's pocket. Nobody else can. And we don't need minutes or you know many, many minutes to warm up. We need you know less than a couple seconds, right? You turn it on, it works. Is that so, part of the disruption plan in general because this new product is that much cheaper, that much more portable, and that much more functional? Yeah, we think, again, if something's in your trunk or back at the station, you're going to use it less than if it's in your pocket or in the, in the glove compartment. So making things easy to use, like a flashlight, and, and just making it work in seconds and being able to see through plastic bags so you're safer, right? You don't have to prep the sample in any way. It's just different and makes it more likely to be used. And some of our earliest beta trials with there were sheriffs and whatnot in Arizona, near where the company's headquartered, they owned more expensive solutions from other companies that were in their trunks and they didn't want to take them out because it was just a hassle. So they liked using this newer, lighter, simpler one that you point, it beeps and a light flashes and it tells you right away if something is a harmful thing like meth or fentanyl or that it's not. Whenever you're dealing in law enforcement, you're going to have a cohort of people who are into the rights of those accused. People rely on that evidence in a trial of some kind or in prosecution. Um, have you had discussions about how, how reliable it is in a sure. prosecutor's case? I mean, those are huge issues that we can't really go into detail, but the, the, the high level stuff is we're not trying to utilize our things for more than just a presumptive evidence that say it's, okay. it's an issue. But we are trying to help both the officer and the public, right? If someone's got something that an officer suspects is something worse, in many ways, their way to deal with it now is to go arrest them and get the baggie of, of whatever the powder is to their central lab, which may take days to test it. And some poor person sitting in jail for hours or days that may not have to, if they can find out in seconds that no, it's not what, you know, what we were afraid it was and, you know, implying that it could be talking about or something else that far safety, then you wouldn't arrest the person. So you're actually helping get to better conclusions quicker. And if it is someone that you want to invest, you know, you want to do it without risking officer safety or community safety by opening up 
uh, you know, a bag of powder that could have fentanyl that could be very uh, destructive to people in the area. So right. we want to keep it safe and efficient and, and answer the question. Uh, we do notice that, yeah, it's a very contentious topic. And we're not trying to add to that. We're just trying to make things better for all parties involved. Knowing that this is potentially a health hazard or not in seconds versus hours in, in chemical labs back at the station helps everyone. But for actual trials and convictions and things like that, there needs to be real chemical tests done. You know, right. But this is right. the, the first test to say, hey, there's something here. If you get nothing, you know, sensitivity at all, then it's more likely that there is nothing there. If you get something, then it's, you know, beyond a certain threshold for prosecutability for meth or any threshold where you can notice it for fentanyl is, is prosecutable. So then, you know, there's a, a real public health danger and that you should, you know, stop this person and take them in. But our goal is not to be part of, you know, what has been this huge, essentially wasteful war on drugs that makes everybody a criminal and locks people up and wastes taxpayer dollars. Right. Our goal is to make it faster and simpler for officer safety and to focus on, on what's better for the, the community and the people as well. But our goal is not to debate that. It's to help find it and nip it in the bud so that less people die. And you're going to use it in a lot of places here, not just law enforcement, but in detecting COVID-19. And, well, uh, they're different tools. Those are completely different tools, although they're based on the same science, technology, and even some of the engineering platform. Right. And I think in any diagnostic tool, you have the issue or the potential issue of false positives. I know COVID-19 is rife with them. That's and, why um, we are very careful not to use the words diagnostic or say we're making. Oh, uh, OK. So I said the D word. How, how do we rephrase that? Because if you look, use something for surveillance and you're just trying to you know, look at things, you have less of those rules involved. For example, so the rule of surveillance, that seems a bit more Orwellian. <laughs> yeah, well, but think about it. If you wanted to keep airports open at the beginning of a pandemic, we can actually look at, you know, you spit in a tube and we can look at that fast, as fast or faster than someone can check your passport to go through a line. So at the moment, early in any development before we would have any FDA or this and that, we could still look at things and say, oh, we see no issue, keep going. And that's okay, because all we're doing is surveilling if there's an issue. If we see something that we believe could be something like COVID, we can't call it that because that would be a diagnostic, but we could highlight that person to step out of line and go through what's already been an approved diagnostic solution, quick test in that country, right? So we wouldn't call it ourselves doing it, but that gets us lots of data that shows, oh, our solution would actually correlate with the approved other thusins, which would be part of what we need to do in a multi-million dollar test or clinical study for the solution anyway. So partnerships are a key part of our strategy. If I'm understanding this correctly, and there's ample chance that I'm not, huh. this is based on physics and spectroscopy, and that's more of a surveillance tool. But the ultimate backup yeah. to that is the chemical analysis. Yeah. So if someone stops a car because their lights out, driving drunkenly, whatever, and the, you see something that's white powder in a bag or whatever, this will make it quick to test it. And if it lights up saying that there could be math or could be fentanyl, then it, that's a presumptive reason to bring the person in. If it doesn't, now you have more data not to bring the person right. in. So our goal is just to make tools that benefit both sides, the officer and the community. And when you shine this tool at a bag of suspected nefarious uh, material, what drugs. That, yeah, what will that tool detect? A spectral pattern, a chemical compound, or uh, how? So it goes through a lot of details about spectra and signal heights and this and that and different ratios because a lot of things have spectra, a lot of things have bonds. 
But if you know that it's fentanyl, it has a certain signature fingerprint, as it were, or, mm. or a certain fingerprint, as it were. The problem is that there's other chemicals near that and other chemicals that modify the signals. And so we have to do an awful lot of math in the background to understand what it's looking at and we just to come up with a simple solution. There are solutions out there that look at hundreds of chemicals and give you huge scientific spectra and output complex graphs. That's not us. We're trying to be a flashlight. You push a button and it beeps and a light lights up. If you know it lights up, yellow is a trace detection of something, either meth or fentanyl, depending on which yellow light, where red light's a stronger detection of something. Eventually, you know, next year, the air force want to add cocaine and heroin or something to it in one detector too, because then that saves the police departments from having to keep all these chemical narc kits and things that expire. They sit on shelves and go bad and they be thrown yeah. out by new ones. If you have four different drugs you're doing that for, again, you still might need that, those tests to have around, but you could use 90% less of them if you had a device like this, which has almost zero operating costs. Because once you buy it, and you, you charge it, it can do you know, 10,000 different scans. It's very low cost, like literally fractions of pennies, right? To charge up the battery and use it for many years, et cetera. So. And speaking of costs, I'm also just thinking about whatever training that a, an officer would need in order to use it properly. It sounds like it's an aim and shoot uh, and, yeah, and it's actually very binary approach. Either it is or it isn't. But what kind of training would the, uh, would the police need to keep up to date well, the technology? Well, need is a strong word. The reality is that lots of people won't buy it unless they know they can get some training. So yeah. we're offering a pretty inexpensive one-hour Zoom training course that includes in most cases, our CTO and myself to discuss with people in the field how, how to use it. We've already put some videos online, which people can look at first. We'll do more. And the training classes can go through the rationale behind some of those videos and answer questions. But it is pretty simple, the basic use, you know, point and shoot. Well, let's, uh, when you talk about revenue streams, then I'm guessing the initial revenue stream will come from appropriations from law enforcement once they see the benefit of this. For that product. Yes. And that's our first product revenue, which, you know, just now started. We hope the public showing next month at the ICP show in Dallas will be lead to, to more. But a lot of it's going to be, you know, one, two, you know, five sets orders so they can put more in the following year's budget and, and things are following quarters orders. So they try it out. And we have a few departments that have already announced some trials with us and, and more we're about to announce. Uh, but those trials we expect will lead to some, some orders from them, too. But other revenue in parallel, like I said, some will be what we call NRE, non-recoupable engineering expense from projects for other things, whether it be food safety or manufacturing or beyond. And of course, we're always applying, not always, but often applying for certain government grants, SBARs from people like NIH or NSF or what we consider our breakthrough technology in certain areas and certain applications, as well as partnerships with larger companies that often want to help fund research in certain areas so they can benefit from it first. And so uh, is the revenue stream, is it going to be like a one-off expense or is there a subscription involved or so lock our, in some long-term revenue plans? Well, our initial product is a one-term expense for you know law enforcement to buy something that can get rid of them buying other disposables, other products that, that can go bad, like we talked about chemical narc tests and things. Over time, we don't see the law enforcement piece having subscription need base, but we do see certain pathogens or food safety and certain healthcare things needing monthly access to our database and, and updates and, and, and software for things to be changed. So that'll have more subscription. Uh, and, you know, the hardware then would be the cost less or sometimes given away, right? It's the razor blade versus razor model. Uh, and, then, and for some things, when you get into it, eventually for human healthcare, there might even be disposables that allow you to spit in a tube or that's special in a certain way that allows us to use some of our technology to really enhance signal noise. 
and that disposal has to then be used up like a razor blade and we get to charge repeatedly for that. But our goal again is to have everything be cost effective. Let's talk about competition. Do you have comp- competitors who are familiar with this technology and are trying to beat you to market? There are lots of competitors in the world. There are some very big companies worth hundreds of billions of dollars, much larger than that. Have <laughs> yeah, that's always uh, yeah startups nightmares when uh, you're trying to be. Well, a- but their focus, at least in the law enforcement piece, their focus has been much more expensive things that do much more other things too. And our focus is real ease of use, real safety and efficiency, and very inexpensive, many times cheaper than theirs. Right? They're hundreds of percent more, or multiple times, two, three, five, even ten times more expensive than what we are. So. We don't think we replace the need for their solutions in the market. We think we add more safety on you know, finite budgets so people can do more things and get it in more officers' hands or in more, or more airports or whatnot where it can be valuable to Border Patrol, et cetera. So what control do you have? You know, well, no one has any control over anything, so I'll, I'll rephrase. Um, when you think about longer-term plans, like you, know, you definitely have goals. Law enforcement is, is where the most progress has been made. You clearly have goals for, for detecting COVID and for detecting food pathogens. Do you have a sense of when all three of those uh, revenue streams might be in place? Yeah. So clearly law enforcement, we, you know, we can do things this year because it's, it's simpler what we're trying to do. Uh, food safety is you know, a year or two away and uh, it's not just COVID, but the viruses we can do all sorts of viruses and all sorts of healthcare issues you know, it could be three, four, five years away, depending on what we choose and who we partner. Well, COVID's with. the marquee, so it's usually at the top of the theater sign. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's. I'm sure there's a lot more than just COVID to detect. And to be honest, you know, two years ago, COVID was people are throwing money at it for economic solutions. Today, they're doing the opposite. So if you try and raise money on a COVID solution, you get nothing. But our really? goal is to people that. kind of gun shy at that, or why do you think that is? It's, yeah, I mean, it's a much longer discussion, but yeah, people are tired of talking about it. Let alone <laughs> the fact that. You know, the need for shutting down the society has changed, right? Mm. You know, there are a lot of economies that handled it a lot better in the US. Uh, you know, so we ignored it for a while and dismissed it for a while from people that were afraid of facts or science, uh, which led to many more deaths per capita here than we should have had. But that said, globally, enough people have had it or the vaccines and other things to minimize the initial threat. There'll be other mutations of COVID, but and other things. I, I personally think that other really scary pandemics are coming, but it won't be the, the COVID virus. There'll be other types of viruses and other types of things. But being able to monitor, right, and and you know look at, at various issues in public health is an important part of us just getting a better handle on things. And our focus on doing it cheaply and quickly, saving money, saving lives is an important part of what we want to bring to society and you know all countries over time. And this is the kind of technology that could be used to discover if there is a new pandemic or if there is a new outbreak. But I mean, yeah. so we're not going to be the ones discovering something new. We're going to be the ones when CDC or other global healthcare organizations uh, that have that capability for early warnings find thing. Then they do the genetic analysis. Then they say, here's what it looks like. Then we can look at it using our tools to say, great, now we know how to see it in saliva or urine or something faster, better, cheaper than anyone else and then make that, those tools available. That's the plan. We're not, you know, we don't have something available yet. And we couldn't, you know, tomorrow, if there was a new pandemic. No, but the plan it. is great. The, you know, when you think about what your plan is, that's what a startup is, to recognize opportunity and go grab it. And it yeah, seems like actually, there is a huge opportunity in that, because once that technology exists and is fungible, 
and applicable in a number of different crises, it sounds like there's a, a lot of growth ahead. That's the goal. We, I, we think some of the brilliant stuff we're doing is not just in the technology, but in the business model, where we know how to build that type of solution with our technology and components, some of which we've proven out, some of which we haven't at scale yet. But we're now getting projects and products together that build all those thing, pieces to the broader thing with other funding sources and other revenue streams and other companies to finance things. So that's not all our investors doing you know, huge investment in R&D and wait for five, 10 years for payback. That's not the ROI we want and that's not the company we want. So we think the breakthroughs we have in our business model of generating revenue in pieces as we go and build the components and then generating differently for maximizing the return on investment to our shareholders, those we think are equally important. Well, the breakthrough itself is an extraordinary story, and I am very eager to learn more about how this progresses. I get the vibe that many more uses for this technology are going to arise as it's implemented. I'm and glad you feel that Any way. happy accidents as there are preconceived ones. Absolutely. And we'll just have to schedule time to come back to your wonderful podcast uh, <laughs> in the future, 6, 12, 18 months from now, and, and, and show you different new things each time. Let's skip ahead then. Let's 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 pretend it's 24 months from now. Where would you like LightSense to be, and what do you think would be the greatest obstacle toward having that happen? You know, obviously, we talked about three, actually four different areas today that are in development. One closer to revenue than the rest. In 24 months from now, I'd like more of them to be actually in product and in revenue, as well as development of future bigger, better things for more revenue that would include the online database and cloud and ability eventually leading to healthcare HIPAA compliant clouds and abilities. But the goal, there's many things to get there, many partnerships, many funding, you know, pieces to get there. We want to maintain the focus on high ROI for our investors and shareholders, as well as partnerships so that we share the upside, but we also then share the the risk of investment. The biggest threat to that is just getting good people and getting good investors, you know, now that that share our, our goals and dreams, right? So we always going to need more R&D to bring things to market uh, that are just rock solid and bulletproof. We don't want to wait till everything's perfect, right? You don't want perfect to be the enemy of good. You got to get things out there and learn yeah. from our experience. Uh, but we need investors and partners and even strategic partnerships with universities and other research labs around the world that we're working on and with already to bring things to market uh, quicker and better with you know that shared ROI so we don't put it all on our investors. That's why we think our early investors today, and we hope people go check us out at startengine.com or the link at lightsensetechnology.com to our new StartEngine crowdfunding. Go look at it because I believe, and I've been part of small companies and big companies. I've helped raise billions for big companies and about 50, 60 million for little companies. And I've been part of IPOs that returned huge return on investments uh, to investors. I believe that whether it's our licensing, our income, you know, eventual IPO or other M&A events, or even selling off pieces of our technology in different markets, there's a lot of value that we can create for shareholders. And that's, and that's you, once again, you brought about the perfect segue as we wind down here. Let's talk about, you mentioned you're at uh, Start Engine. Let's talk about where investors can get a hold of you or where they can see more about LightSense, learn more, geek out even. Where can yeah, they find yeah. all that? I mean, if you're a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer that you know wants to get in the, the startup game because it helps diversify your investments and has much larger potential returns, 
right? It is risky, as you mentioned, and we mentioned too. First, check us out at www.lightsensetechnology.com. And on every page of our website, at the top is a link to the Start Engine campaign page, which talks all about the current raise. Uh, where again, we're, we're trying to raise you know, a million or two dollars to just fund the R&D to bring more great things to market. And if you look at our tech video webpage, we have three uh, videos there, one in animation, two other, the campaign video, and another one, the talking heads with some of our founders, just to talk about our motivation, our goals, our hopes and dreams for what Lightsense can do for society, which is bring great technology to market for lower, that lowers costs and saves price, but also then makes a very economically viable company with good returns for their investors, because it is our focus to spend less, make more, and save money and save lives. The four horsemen of entrepreneurship right there, those four sentiments. Um, That's brilliant, Doug. That's a four horsemen of entrepreneurship. Yeah, we want to ride <laughs> benefit society and our investors. So yeah, we think it's great. So check us out, lightsensetechnology.com, and our links on every page to Start Engine. Uh, and thank you again for your time and your help in getting the message out about what LightSense can do for society. I really enjoy these conversations. I'm grateful for your time. I'm grateful for the, the opportunity to try and distill all that's going on in that great Philly mind of yours. And for the benefit of an investor who sees a great opportunity when it comes along. One other theme that I've really enjoyed talking with entrepreneurs is how important it is to have a supportive partner and the particular nature of when you are an entrepreneur, sometimes you need to veer off into a particular groove of thought. And um, it's it's great to have a, a partner there to help bring you out. And Absolutely. The smartest thing I ever did, like some of my good friends, was to marry up. So I have a wonderful wife who's brilliant, smart, creative, and talented. She's amazing. And I was fortunate enough to have her around to give the creativity and the sportsmanship and a lot of other pieces to my kids so they could then tolerate me on the side. <laughs> Well, I think there's another facet of entrepreneurship that comes through as well. And that's an overall optimism for the human condition. You can, Absolutely. As my father always taught me, don't curse the darkness without bringing a flashlight. I really appreciate your time, Bruce. Once again, you've been talking to the Chief Marketing Officer at LightSense Technology, Bruce Burkoff. I've been your host, Doug French. And thank you for listening to this episode of Successfully Funded. And we'll see you next time with another story about venturing forth to do good and do well. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks.